Hello, and welcome to another episode of Abstract, the podcast of the Metropolitan Educational Research Consortium in the School of Education at Virginia Commonwealth University, where we explore issues and ideas in public PK-12 education. My name is Jesse Seneschal. I'm the director of Merck and the host of this episode. Today's conversation is part of a special series in connection with the theme of our upcoming Merck conference, The Promise of Public Education Connecting Research, Policy, and Practice in a New Era. What do we mean by the promise of public education in a new era? Public schools have been designed to meet a range of ambitious goals critical to the health and stability of our country. They promise opportunities for social mobility, to develop skills that lead to fulfilling vocation and economic livelihood, and to instill dispositions and critical thinking skills essential for democratic citizenship. Although elements of these foundational principles may endure, recent events have shed light on how this promise has in many cases been unfulfilled, particularly for specific student populations. Over the past year and a half, we've seen the COVID-19 pandemic disrupt nearly every aspect of public schools, forcing educators and students to rapidly adapt to a new and uncertain environment. At the same time, international social movements promoting racial justice have called upon school systems to re-examine policies and practices in pursuit of greater equity for the students and their, their students and their community. Whatever the future may bring, public education finds itself at, at an inflection point where we can reimagine its purposes and possibilities. For each episode in this series, we will explore a fundamental element of public education, discuss how it has been impacted by the events of the past year and a half, and share our vision for what it could be moving forward. In this episode, we will discuss the profession of teaching and have invited local experts who can speak to where we might go from here. And for this episode, when I say local experts, I mean teachers. So let me introduce you to the panel. First, we have Deanna Fierro. Deanna is an experienced pre-K-12 educator in Henrico County Public Schools and a parent and active community member of the city of Richmond. Deanna earned her undergraduate degree in math education at the University of Texas at El Paso. Later, uh, while earning her master's of education at Virginia Commonwealth University, she immersed herself in understanding the educational needs of students throughout Virginia and the policies that directly affect their educational experience. Her advocacy efforts include working with elected officials to develop policies that provide the most vulnerable students a voice and equitable learning experiences. This led her to run for school board in her own community in 2020, and now has led her to pursue a PhD in education with a concentration in educational leadership policy and justice at VCU. Welcome, Deanna. Hi, thank you for inviting me. Next, we have Patricia Woodbury. Pat is a elementary uh, teacher with the programs for gifted and talented in Richmond Public Schools. She holds a Bachelor of Science in Education and a Master's of Arts in Student Affairs and Higher Education. She holds certifications in early education, middle, middle education, intellectual disabilities, and gifted education. Pat often mentions that she has seen just about everything with students from two to 22. For the past 20 years, she's worked with the special programs for academic and creative excellence known as SPACE, the SPACE program, where she has led an effort to move the program from a focus on talent identification to talent development. The focus on equity in, space, in the SPACE program for RPS was sparked in part by an action research project that Pat developed through Merck. She is passionate about teaching kids to utilize critical thinking and problem solving skills and focuses many of her efforts to bring STEM thinking to students from, from underrepresented populations in STEM fields. Pat, great to see you. Hi, thank you for inviting me. Stacy Taylor, our next panelist, is a graduate of Longwood College where she earned a Bachelor's of Arts degree in Liberal Studies and a Master's of Science degree in Literacy and Culture. She also earned an endorsement in Gifted Education as well as certificates in Instructional Technology and Online Teaching and Learning from BCU. Stacy taught history prior to becoming an instructional technology resource teacher, that's an ITRT, where she advocates for student-centered learning, creating, and sharing. She spent most of her 18 years in education at Bell Creek Middle School in Hanover County, where she was selected as the 2011 and 2021 Teacher of the Year. She was also awarded Hanover County Teacher of the Year in 2021. Stacy enjoyed her time as a member of the Greater Richmond Area Educational Technology Consortium, serving as the EdTech RVA Conference Chair and is looking forward to serving on the VSTE Conference Committee. And that stands for Virginia Society for Technology and Education. And that's an affiliate of the International Society for Technology and Education. So a lot of, a lot of technology expertise here. In her spare time, Stacy enjoys the beach, saving sea turtles, kayaking and hiking. Welcome, Stacy. Hey, thanks so much for having me today. 
And finally, last but not least, we have Dr. Terry Dozier, recently retired after 20 years as the director of the Center for Teacher Leadership at Virginia Commonwealth University School of Education, and as the executive director of the RTR Teacher Residency Program, an intensive school-based teacher preparation program that integrates the research and theory behind effective urban teaching with a year-long residency under the mentorship of an exemplary classroom teacher. Prior to joining VCU, Terry was a senior advisor on teaching to former U.S. Secretary of Education Richard W. Riley. In this capacity, she served as the Clinton administration's top policy advisor on all teaching issues. Prior to that, Terry has 17 years of classroom teaching experience in settings as diverse as inner city Miami, suburban South Carolina, and the Singapore American School. While teaching world history at Irmo High School, Dozier was named the 1985 South Carolina and National Teacher of the Year. Welcome, Terry. Good to be here. Thank you for inviting me. All right. Those introductions are quite impressive. Um, and let's get this conversation going. I want to start with just thinking about this moment. And I know from working closely with teachers, I do a lot of work with teachers um, over the past year. And also, I'll just mention I was a teacher myself. I taught for 14 years in uh, Chicago public schools and Richmond public schools. So I, I, have, I have so much love and care about the profession of teaching. I really am excited to talk to you today. But I know from working with teachers, it's been a really incredibly challenging and stressful time to be a teacher. I can't even imagine what everyone has been through. And I also know that this has been a time of intense learning. The unpredictability forced us to adapt, um, to experiment, to make mistakes and really learn as we go. And so I wanna start this conversation with kind of a go around and I wanna focus on this idea of professional learning. And I'd like each of you to tell me one thing that you learned over the course of this year. And I'm gonna start with Pat. The main thing that I learned uh, this year was that um, you can teach an old dog new tricks. Um, I started this virtual year at ground zero. I've been teaching at the elementary level for 30 years. And the primary focus of my pedagogy is, is being close to students, engaging students and, and proximity to students. And on March 13th, 2020, that was cut off and we had to turn on a dime. And so I had to quickly learn some new skills uh, in order to engage students and adapt some new tools. Thank you, Donors Shoes, for allowing me to have some uh, materials that would engage students. And a lot of my teaching is hands-on. That was difficult in this uh, virtual year, but we were able to adapt. Um, so the main thing I learned is that, yeah, I, I can learn new things. I even learned the Foxtrot this summer. So I'm continuing on that, that course. I can't wait to see that. That's awesome. Deanna, what's, what's something that you've learned over this, this past crazy year and a half? So I wouldn't say so much that I learned individually, but that I got to see others learn, especially uh, educators higher than a classroom teacher. Um, you know, you said that this was a very stressful year for us, the classroom teacher. But I think every year is stressful and we always tell our administrators, we always tell our school board, we tell, you know, elected officials that are making policies. This We're going through these stresses because of these needs that our students have. And I think with what had happened over the year of the pandemic, a lot of these individuals got to see it firsthand and that 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 there was a transfer of our stress to them. It was like, finally, they are feeling the stress that we've been feeling for many years. <laughs> That's interesting. I like that idea. Um, Stacy, tell me something you learned this year. So I learned that the best things happen in our uncomfort zone. And, you know, I think the past year and a half, we were really uncomfortable. <laughs> and, I, and I truly believe that um, even though it was out of necessity and it was an extremely difficult year, that it truly helped move us forward leaps and bounds with the use of instructional technology, its lasting impact, and, you know, the opportunities that have now opened up to not only teachers, but students, leaders, our community that have never really existed on a large scale before. And I think because of this, it really solidified the idea that we should be the lead learners in our classrooms. And we shouldn't get comfortable with what we do year after year. And we have to keep learning for the sake of our kids because our kids deserve the best teachers. I love it. Terry, I know you weren't teaching in the classroom um, over this past year, but, but tell me some of the things that you learned. 
Well, I mean, certainly I've learned how adaptable and flexible teachers um, have always been, but were really pushed, I think, to the limit this year and learned that they could do things that they didn't think possible. In our case, in the Center for Teacher Leadership, where we do professional development for teachers, there were many things that I just didn't know or think we could translate uh, into a virtual format. Our new teacher center training, our clinical faculty training, support for teachers going through national national board certification, um, our mentor forums. And yet we were able to do that and do it effectively. And one kind of interesting silver lining to the remote side of um, having to shift our professional development all to a virtual format was that we could reach a larger audience. Um, We had more participation in some cases. You know, our information meetings for National Board, we usually, you know, would do it um, and have maybe 20 people show up. We had a hundred, over a hundred teachers engaged with that. So um, we, we, I'm kind of with Pat here, Uh, you know, we learned that we could do things we didn't think possible. That's cool. That's really cool. I want to stick on this, um, topic of technology, because that's definitely one of the main themes that we're going to be talking about today. And um, with the shift to virtual learning, the work of your teaching transformed radically. You know, there was a a challenge, but it also gave us insights into possibilities, as you were mentioning, Terry, um, of online learning and the integration of technology into teaching. Um, And so I'm going to throw this to Stacey, because you have like a real strong background in, you know, technology and online learning. I'm interested to hear your thoughts about the lasting effect. Like, what how do you think this is like we had already, we were already introducing technology into education and then all of a sudden this hit and I think it kind of springboarded us. Where do you see this shift having an impact in the years to come? Well, I know one of the things and I'm sure you guys heard it too, um, that I heard quite a few times over the past year is that online learning is inferior and not as good. Um, and while I do believe we learned that online learning is not for everyone, I think we also learned that face to face schooling isn't either. And so there were many students who we've never really been able to reach um, prior to last year who finally excelled in an online environment. I know in Hanover, a lot of our instructional leaders read um, the distance learning playbook prior to the start of last year to kind of get our heads wrapped around this whole idea. And one of the quotes that really resonated with me said, what teachers and leaders do matters not the medium in which they do it. Um, So good teaching is good teaching, no matter if it's online or face-to-face. And I think a lot of people have realized that online learning opens up more choices for students. And I think that's where that lasting impact is. And I think that choice is great because it enables us to better meet individual needs of our students and gives our students a little bit more control over their learning that they've never had before. And I think our students, you know, should have options because everyone deserves a year's worth of growth. You know, um, I was I was thinking back to my first five years of teaching when, you know, I'm inexperienced. I remember several students who sat in class bored or they maybe they misbehaved because they already knew the content. And I was too inexperienced to know another option for them. But yet they're being forced to continue with that class. And I would have loved to had another option for them that would have enabled them to get their own year's worth of growth. And I think online learning provides that choice that would enable that from happening. Yeah, yeah. Do others have thoughts on this? Like, I'm, I'm kind of curious, like, where do we see this in five years? Do you think, do you think schools are going to look different because of like this kind of rapid infusion of technology? One of the things I wanted to point out is that in Richmond, we did not have a one-to-one technology situation, especially at the elementary school. Mm -hmm. So we jumped uh, dramatically in terms of access to technology for all of our students, especially at the elementary school. Um, And that's going to enable them to develop their digital literacy and media literacy so much more. than having, you know, center time maybe once a week on the computer. So it was a benefit for our students. Other thoughts on that? How do you think this is going to like change teaching? 
I think in my experience being a math educator over the years, in that specific content, a lot of math teachers said, we can't integrate computers all the time. It can't be done. We can't do all of that. And it's so funny how with uh, what we went through, you had to do that. <laughs> so mm -hmm. it was no longer the impossible. It was very possible. But one other thing that I really think it'll help do is normalize allowing us to do um, things like parent conferences virtually. That was why that hadn't happened before um, is, is very interesting and something that, you know, a lot of people overlook the opportunity that you have to have more parents engaged um, that, you know, normally can't come to the school to talk to their teachers, to see their students work. And now we have these platforms available to us and we're, we're used to them. So I, I want to see that continue in the years to come. Uh, and, and Jesse, I would just add, um, we're members of the National Center for Teacher Residencies, and as directors, we met every month. And so this was kind of the unanimous um, feeling of all of the directors is that as difficult as this year has been in teachers having to adapt and learn how to use new technology to engage students, what they felt would be lasting was that teachers now have a whole new you know, set of repertoire that they can call upon to engage students and that that will continue. I also think just given what's been happening in the last few weeks with now this concern about the you know, spread of the Delta variant and you know, high um, rates and we all are hearing about this won't be our last pandemic, that I think virtual uh, learning and virtual, in our case, teacher preparation is going to have to become a part of any preparation that a new teacher is going to have. Because I think we now realize we're going to have to be ready for the next pandemic, whatever it's going to look like, um, that could force us to immediately shift again. Right. Yeah. No, I think that those are all great points. I, I... Dan, I want to come back to you just for a second and, and think about, there, I think there's a lot of promise in technology, but the, what do you see as some of the downsides? Like if we shift, as we're making the shift, what are the things that we need to be cautious about? Uh, first of all, I know that we do want teachers to have this uh, these tools in their bag, uh, but some things that I've heard is like, you know, oh, there won't be any more snow days. <laughs> you know, that there's that expectation that an immediately a teacher will just jump and have a virtual lesson ready to go. And that's not realistic because even in person, that's not realistic. When you, you know, when you have something planned, when you really do plan out your, your pacing and your goals and what you want to teach the children, you don't do it overnight. It takes time. Um, so we got to be careful with that expectation. Uh, and be realistic at and look at how much time it takes to plan a meaningful learning activity and experience for our students. Any any other thoughts? Like really thinking about the, especially with the work of teachers. Do you think this like infusion of technology is going to put more burden on teachers and and the the nature of the the work that you that you do? Well, hopefully it won't directly um, because some 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 school divisions already have decided to make virtual academies of their own, virtual schools to mirror their in-person schools. Mm -hmm. So that's good because then a teacher has the option to say, well, this is the, the, the platform that I want to use and I'll be able to be most effective if that's what I'm doing. Um, so hopefully we'll, we'll do things like that. I think overall, one of the things that um, that you have to be careful, though, when do, teaching virtually is losing the effectiveness of your communication. You lose so much not being in person. Um, as, like again, an example with my content in mathematics, the content itself is so objective that what I'm really getting from students when I'm in person, when I'm teaching them a concept, is that look in their face, that tension in the air that tells me they're not getting it. This tool that I'm using at this moment in front of them is not working. I need to change right now. I need to pivot and try something different. When we're online, things as simple as wait time for or response time to a question is missed because you don't know. You know, I had conversations with teachers and we said, I don't know if they're not responding because they're not engaging and they're not paying attention or they've fallen back to sleep or they're not responding because they really are thinking about it. I can't see that in a student's face when they're also nervous to turn on the camera or something like that. So there's a lot of communication that can get lost that I think is gonna take us some more time to research and to learn and understand 
so that we can regain it back if we're going to stay virtual. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I know the relationship piece is really just very different in online spaces. I want to shift for a minute to a um, different topic. Um, prior to the pandemic, the issue of teacher retention was one of one that researchers were trying to understand that policymakers were trying to address. While the pandemic shifted our attention, I can say that the challenge of recruiting, preparing and retaining and engaged and effective teacher workforce hasn't gone away. Do you all think that the current change underway in public education uh, will lead to changes in the way that we think about recruiting, preparing and retaining teachers? And I've really crafted this question for Terry to take the first stab at it because I know you think a lot about this. Uh, it definitely should change the way we approach things. Um, and I think, you know, the comment about, you know, we shifted our attention to the pandemic. And of course, we've got multiple pandemics going on right now. We've got the COVID, we've got the racial injustice and systemic racism and all those things that have highlighted and exacerbated the inequities in our society and especially in education. So we really can't afford to go back to things as normal, especially as we look at the changing demographics of our country. Um, and so, you know, when I, when I think about recruitment, certainly for what we've been doing with the RTR teacher residency program, we've always been focusing on identifying individuals who really want to work in high need schools and screening for that. Um, and then making sure that they're really well prepared by this intensive school-based year-long residency where they are co-teaching and being coached by an exemplary teacher. Um, but one of the things that we've realized, and I think all of us are going to have to realize in terms of teacher recruitment, is that we've got to start focusing much more uh, intensely locally within our communities because those are the people that are going to stay in the community. I mean, you can attract people with all kinds of incentives, but then they're going to leave uh, pretty quickly. Um, and that recruitment really has to start much earlier. Uh, now, we do have the Virginia Teachers for Tomorrow program, uh, but that's high school. And I know from my past life in South Carolina with the uh, Teacher Cadet program there, they found out that you can get kids interested in teaching as high school students, but if they don't think they're going to college and by middle school, they've determined whether they're going to college, they're not going to take the courses they need to be qualified to go to college. So we've got to start in middle school, identifying individuals and especially targeting our high need students because we want our teaching population to mirror our student population. Um, and then, you know, you have to prepare teachers in the context within which they're going to work. Um, and that's why, you know, the residency program is focused on that. Um, and what's happening now is that um, we're looking at movements in the country where they're advocating a year-long residency or clinical experience for all teachers because we know, you know, eight to 12 weeks of student teaching is not enough, even though, you know, teachers cite as the most powerful and important part of their preparation, that student teaching component, but it needs to be much longer. Um, and we also have learned, I think, that shortcuts to the classroom are not effective. Uh, yes, we can get teachers in the door that way, but they revolve right back out. So we're not making a dent in the core uh, problem. And one of the things that I'm learning as I work or as I had, I worked, I, I'm still in present tense here, but as I've worked with our partners in, in the region, is they're beginning to realize it's not just recruitment, it's retention that they've got to focus on. Um, because if, if all we're worried about is getting them in, but not making sure, A, that they're well prepared, and then we're providing that ongoing support, they're going to be right out the door again. And for that ongoing support, we have to tap teacher leaders. They're the ones that are going to know what um, an individual needs. And that's why our model is based on that co-teaching with um, an individual that has been trained in this new role. So that's the other part of what I wanna say. Um, at the Center for Teacher Leadership, we've learned early on that the preparation of teacher leaders was as important as the preparation of a new teacher. You can be an exemplary teacher, but that doesn't mean you know how to be an instructional coach as you're helping a novice become you know, more um, effective and skilled. 
Um, and so, you know, we've got to focus on all of those things, um, changing the way we recruit and making sure we're identifying people who really want to serve where the need is greatest. We've got to prepare them well through an intensive, you know, year-long experience, and we've got to make sure that they're well-supported for the remainder of their career. Not And obviously, we, we provide strong induction for the first two years, but teachers want to continue to feel that they're part of a profession that values them, supports them, and that's why tapping teacher leaders is so important. I, I love all those ideas. I'm curious if any others of you have um, thoughts on recruitment, preparation, and retention of teachers as we're kind of moving forward now? We have an opportunity to reinvent the whole like idea of profession of teaching. How do we do this in a way that'll build a, a, a really strong and um, sustained teaching force? Any thoughts? I think one of the things that the pandemic did for teaching is to elevate the profession of teaching to a degree uh, when parents had to deal with the education system in a closer relationship with their students. Um, I think it did elevate teaching to a degree. Uh, we need to continue on that path, uh, not only in terms of housing students and, and occupying students during the day, but elevating even the pay, elevating our support of teachers, um, as Dr. Dozier said, throughout their career not just at the beginning, not just in special programs, but opportunities to grow throughout the careers. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely agree. Any other thoughts? I'd like to say there's a big piece that we don't really talk about with recruiting teachers and it's the quality of life. It's what does their life look like outside of the school hours, the instruction, um, and how do, how do the, the pressures and the expectations that we put on them change that quality of life over time? And so I, this summer, I had the opportunity to lead a summer academy, a summer school. And a lot of teachers were very stressed already and like, I don't know if I want to do summer school <laughs> after, you know, the, the wild year of being virtual and being hybrid. Um, and then there was also the, you know, there was money. There was other schools that, you know, my division competed against um, that, that were paying way more than we could. That's, that's budget constraints that we have. But in the process of hiring our summer school teachers, it was a conversation of, yes, you can go to another division that maybe has more money to offer you, um, but you know, we have struck, we have a very structured process, we have these supports in place, and giving them that list of those supports that will tell teachers, okay, you know what, I've court, and I'm not advocating not to pay teachers more, I'll tell you that for sure. <laughs> but you would be surprised that some teachers will, will be able to let that go for just a minute if they know that the quality of life is not going to diminish. Yeah, those are all, all great points. I'm going to, um, I'm going to move us on to the next topic. And this was actually already raised um, by Terry in the previous question around um, the idea of kind of a focused awareness on injustice and equity. And so the, of course, the years, the events of the past year and a half have kind of raised awareness across the country. Um, and the role of schools and teachers in addressing this has also been a critical part of the conversation. In fact, as you all probably know, recently the state of Virginia passed a law mandating cultural competence training for all teachers. And so I'd like to raise a couple questions here. <clears throat> what are your thoughts about this movement um, towards you know, increased cultural competency with teachers? And do you think this increased awareness and push for cultural responsive education is going to have a lasting impact on the work of teachers moving forward? And I'm gonna um, let Pat um, start us out on this one. I'm appreciative of the fact that the state of Virginia is in making an effort to address cultural competency with teachers. Um, I view cultural competency as a journey, not a status that is achieved. And once done, you're done. Uh, it is a cyclical journey. And I'm not sure how the state plans to uh, address it or how they plan to uh, examine it or how they plan to evaluate cultural competency but we, we need to understand that there is a spectrum that exists of cultural competency. And few people can say, you know, that they're truly culturally competent because we're always learning. One of the things that happened to me during the pandemic was that I, I 
didn't drive anywhere. I didn't go anywhere. Didn't need to. I had groceries delivered. Everything was brought to the house. Didn't drive anywhere. Once I started driving again, I found that I was surprised by some of the blind spots on my vehicle. I had not been accustomed to checking those specific blind spots. And I was traveling between two different vehicles. So they had different blind spots. I think we don't know what we don't know sometimes. And we do have blind spots when it comes to cultural um, competency. And we don't know that we don't know until someone points out that we don't know. There may be a collision. I, I appreciate the Virginia taking the step, but each school has to create an atmosphere where that growth, that journey can be free and open. Cultural competency involves values. And I'm not sure how much we can evaluate and mandate values, valuing various cultures, but we can directly evaluate culturally relevant pedagogy. We can directly evaluate what we see in the classroom in terms of culturally responsive teaching and integrating that into not only the SOLs, but into every classroom from the administration on down would be more impactful than um, me taking an online quiz or going to a PD or reading a book to say, oh yeah, now I'm culturally competent. I just don't believe it happens that way, but I think it's a start. I think it, it matters. Just as um, to say Black Lives Matters is a minimum, it matters to say, you know, to have teachers that are culturally competent, it does matter. So I, I'm curious about others' perspectives on this, and I'm, I'm, um, I, I agree. This is some hard work we have ahead of us. This is not just an, a, a certificate you get or an endorsement. If this is um, ongoing work, how how does that how does that happen, and how does that kind of transform the way that we think about the profession of teaching? Or do we have any thoughts about that? Um, Jesse, as I thought about this question, and I'm, I'm right there with Pat on this, if it becomes a sit and get, the once and done, and you've checked that box that you've had the culturally relevant, you know, pedagogy training, um, it's not going to have any kind of impact, um, or I won't say any kind, but it'll have minimal impact. I was thinking about um, the seminal work and professional development that Joyce and Showers did back in the 80s, and then again in the early 2000s in which they really demonstrated that unless you have ongoing coaching and support when you're trying to learn a new skill, um, you're not going to implement it. You'll implement 15, you know, 15% of teachers will implement it. Uh, but with that ongoing coaching support encouragement, um, and I, I agree with Pat, there's got to be some way of measuring this as well. Then you have an 80% chance that teachers are going to actually be successful in implementing this. So I think that A, we are at a point where in our country and in our state, we recognize that this is important, uh, especially, again, as I said, with the changing demographics of our country, uh, we've got to learn how to meet the needs of all students and especially our black and brown students. Um, but we also have to recognize that it's got to be more than checking something off, that we've got to provide, as Pat said, those communities within a school where we're supporting one another, we're coaching and learning and getting feedback on our own practice. And that's what's going to change um, you know, teachers' practice as opposed to just a workshop that you check off each year or, you know, take some quiz. Yeah, I was going to add, I, I, you know, I agree with what Terry and Pat have said. And um, I think what we can do, because this is moving in the right direction, is start with what teachers already know. And it's the idea that um, building relationships is the foundation of, you know, good teaching. And good teachers know that they have to get to know their students. And if you don't know your students, if the students don't know that you care, then they're not gonna learn. So understanding who they are, where they've come from, their families, their culture, traditions, behavioral norms, beliefs, it makes a difference. 
in building that trust. And I think if we start where teachers kind of already feel more comfortable, then it helps in taking those bigger steps and taking the steps to self-reflect and look inside first. Yeah, and I agree with uh, Pat. Culturally responsive teaching, just like other 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 tools that we use, like restorative justice, those need to be ways of life. Those need to be just something that we do all the time in the classroom and outside of the classroom. And I think it, we also have to learn how to find the balance where it's a give and take. It's a back and forth conversation. You know, we know historically that the conversation has always been a top down way. There's always somebody, you know, that it had been set as superior than everybody else. Um, and we saw that with education where the teacher always was right, no matter what. We've worked many years to shift that, to change that so that it's a, we're on a, a level playing field with our students and learning from each other. And that needs to be the same way with culturally responsiveness. I can say that firsthand from myself. I came from a community where it was 99% Hispanic. When I moved to Virginia, I had to learn more about white and black culture that I didn't know. So it, it's a give and take, it's back and forth. All right, that was that was super interesting. Um, great, great ideas, and there's a lot of work on that front. And I'm excited that um, to see where we go with this. Um, I'm going to shift topics again. As you may know, I've um, had an interest for a number of years in the idea of teacher job satisfaction and morale. And to put it in the most basic terms, a teacher's morale is determined by their anticipation or hope of finding satisfaction and fulfillment in their work moving forward. So, high morale teachers are ones that look forward to coming back to school next year, and are excited about the next day of school. Um, and low morale teachers kind of dread the idea of continuing the profession. So considering all that we've been through, you, you all have been through quite a bit, how would you rate your morale? I'm gonna kind of have a go, I, I, I said this one to be a go around, but I don't really wanna have a go around on this. What, what do you think about the, your own morale and sort of the morale of the teachers overall? Do you think, do you think we have a, an engaged teaching force now? Um, what are your thoughts? I'm gonna start with Stacy. Well, I think my morale, if I'm, you know, really thinking about that, I would say I'm at about a, if I'm, you know, scoring it out of 10, I would probably give myself maybe a seven or eight. Um, and I think that's pretty high. I think that's great. Um, I'm very hopeful. Um, you know, we'll be starting the year with teachers who are well rested, hopefully, <laughs> from a much deserved summer break. And um, while mitigation strategies are probably still going to be in place and you know, teachers know that setups and routines are going to start looking a lot more like they used to. Um, and I, but I think we have so much more knowledge and expertise, expertise under our belts now that teachers are going to come back with a lot more confidence um, under, you know, that they can pretty much do anything <laughs> after last year. And I'm just hopeful and excited ab about that and to begin a new year, especially um, as we see more opportunities to address the needs of our students. And I mean, I'll be honest, you know, there were times last year where my morale was probably down to a, a three, two. <laughs> I wasn't ready to completely walk out the door, but there were some tough moments. Um, there were so many demands, um, so many teachers needing so many things. And if I could have cloned myself, that would have made all the difference in the world. But um, I am hopeful. That's great. I'm going to throw this to Deanna. What's, what's your morale right now? Are you looking forward to the future in teaching? I'm always looking forward to the future of teaching. Yeah. Uh, it's the same reason why uh, I I made a, you know, I, I chose not to leave when everything started, when we knew that the new school year, this last school year was going to be virtual and then potentially hybrid and that there was all these, you know, there were already these complications. I didn't leave because I was curious to see what does that look like. I wanted to learn. It piqued my interest as a, as a teacher learner. Um, and now I'm even more interested to see what's it going to look like when we go back. Uh, what are, what do the students look like? And, you know, what, what tools and methods can we put forward to, to get our kids where we need them to be? So, it's an ongoing learning experience being an educator for me that I really love. So I, I'm at a level 10. <laughs> so yes, but I do hope that I can do my best to help other teachers be at a level 10 too, because I would hate to see some amazing teachers leave um, when they come in if they don't feel supported. All right, Pat, tell us about your morale. Um, I'll say I'm about at a level six or seven. I've been a teacher since probably age of six as I was teaching my neighbors, kids to count, um, I just see the power in the classroom and that's where I want to be. That's where I intend to be. I, I don't want to be outside of the classroom. However, I'm cautiously anticipating 
um, what we will be facing as we begin uh, the new year back face-to-face -face, where students haven't been in school buildings. Um, I'm especially interested to see the transition for kindergartners and first graders, first graders who were never in a building in their kindergarten year and what that looks like and how much we're going to have to reestablish those um, status and protocols and all the systems that we have in, in the classroom, um, what, what that will look like as we move forward. But I'm ready to be back face to face. Well, this is all very hopeful. I love it. Um, I, Terry, what is your what is your thought about this? Do you think do you think do you are you optimistic about the future of teaching and the work of teachers? Well, I mean, absolutely. Last year was, I think, the most difficult, certainly was the most difficult of my career. And I wasn't in the classroom, but just knowing what our teachers were dealing with and the students were preparing to be teachers, um, seeing that stress. And, you know, there was stress on all of us in, in terms of how we had to adapt. But one thing I, I believe about teachers is that you have to be eternally an optimist to be a teacher. I mean, that's why we're in the profession. We believe we can make a difference uh, in the lives of kids. And that's what we go back to always as our source of renewal and strength. So um, I do think that, uh, as Stacy said, you know, after the summer where some uh, teachers have had some time off, I know they're going to be excited about seeing their students face to face. Um, and I think, again, um, because we are optimists as educators, that uh, that side will kick in. I do know, and I believe this, that um, our work is more important than ever, um, given what, um, what this pandemic or multiple pandemics has shown us in terms of what we must do as a country. So I'd like to um, end on this idea of action. And Terry, you've been talking about teacher leadership before. And um, as we've discussed today, we're in this moment of historical change in schools and beyond. And when change occurs, we can sit back and sort of let it happen to us, or we can take an active role in shaping the direction of change. And I know that you all care deeply about the profession of teaching. And I also, also know from knowing some of you and also just hearing you talk today that you all are teacher leaders. And so I'm really curious, what can we do individually and collectively to support the profession of teaching moving forward? And, and Terry, I'm gonna start this one with you. Okay. Well, you know, I would say individually, and, and that's what teacher leaders do. They are always trying to learn and to improve themselves. You know, Pat talked about, you know, old dogs learning new tricks. I think that's what teachers always do as, a, as individuals to be the best teacher they can be. But as I think about teacher leadership roles that we desperately need, um, we need teachers to help us prepare the next generation of teachers. Um, we need them to, you know, be mentors, instructional coaches. Um, in our case, you know, clinical faculty working with our student teachers. Um, we need them to seek national board certification and then help others uh, achieve that um, accomplishment milestone in their career because we have evidence from research that national board certified teachers, their students, especially um, in high poverty situations and um, high minority populations, um, their students perform better. Um, collectively, I think we have to think about how we advocate through our organizations, whether it's the Virginia Education Association, our content area, um, you know, uh, organizations like the Teachers of Mathematics, uh, literacy organizations, um, because they're strength in number. And I, I've seen that with some of our residents who try to, buy, to be individuals uh, making change. But I think if we um, advocate, for teachers' voices and do that in a collective manner through our organizations, um, we can, you know, really fight for what our students need and what our profession needs. Um, one of the things that I always uh, talked about when I served in Washington was that we need to honor what teachers know and listen to what they say. And I want to thank you, Jesse, for the panel that you put together because you absolutely did that. You honored the voices of our practicing teachers here on this panel. And uh, I was beaming with pride with the responses that 
um, our panelists gave because it proves um, what I have always believed. And that is that yes, teachers need to be a part of the solution. Um, and in fact, real reform will not change, uh, will not actually happen unless teachers buy into it and have a voice in, uh, in what we, we do. That's great. I'm gonna, I'm gonna pass it over to Pat. What are, what are some thoughts about actions that you can take individually and that we can take collectively? Um, individually, I'm, I'm yet committed to equity and voicing equity in every conversation, in every level, um, and giving voice to my students to um, approach the idea of equity in their own advocacy and their own of their educational experience. Um, so, in every realm that I am involved in, I'll be speaking about equity and culturally relevant pedagogy. And as I have opportunity to even guide professional development or working with the teachers in, in my particular cohort for gifted education, um, making sure that our processes reflect equity, that's what I will be doing as an individual. Um, and then taking that into the groups with which I'm affiliated, uh, launching that, that same passion for, for equity and for, for cultural knowledge. Um, we, we may not have cultural competency and everyone valuing um, diversity at the same rate. We may not get that right away. We won't get that right away. However, we can all learn. We can, we can all at least identify our blind spots. We can kind of figure out what we, some things we don't know and maybe approach those areas um, and just learn more and be on that, that continuum, be on that journey towards cultural competency as well as cultural proficiency. Love it. Um, Stacy. Give me some thoughts on that, this question. Yeah, I think um, one of the key uh, signs of a good teacher is when you are a reflective practitioner. And so I think we need to individually reflect on our own mindset and ask ourselves if we're teaching with this idea of this is mine or this is ours. And, you know, for example, if I create this amazing, truly impactful lesson for my students, why wouldn't I want as many students to benefit from that as possible. Um, I, I don't know if you've read much about George Kiros, but he mentions this idea, and I love it, and I always talk about it, um, this idea of whether or not you consider yourself to be a classroom teacher or a school teacher. And they both do great things in their classrooms, but the difference is that a school teacher believes that all the students are their students, and they have this collaborative spirit about themselves and, you know, I, I've always fascinated about this idea is if we can move this, you know, to be like a Hanover teacher or a Virginia teacher or a U.S. or world teacher, um, just how impactful um, or how much of an impact we can make on student learning if we work better together, work smarter, not harder. Um, I heard this idea from Chesterfield County, this whole idea of building a culture of contribution. I love that term. Um, and if we as educators can consciously collaborate with the intent of creating that culture of contribution, just think about how far reaching our impact on student learning could be. Love that. And um, Deanna, I'm gonna let you, uh, I see some fingers snapping, very nice. Um, Deanna, I'm gonna let you um, close us out on this one. I, I am so excited about everything that I just heard. I wish I could take all of the statements and put them together and then take it to our school boards, our elected officials and say this, this is what teaching is. Um, right now, a lot of what's been going in my head this few uh, couple of days is that we have the American Rescue Plan out and Virginia itself just put out their budget for how those funds are gonna go. I can't tell you how many times with funding advocacy, I feel like first as a teacher, I have to stand there and prove that my expertise is valid, then prove that my experience are, are valid, that that is data that they can actually use to make decisions. 
So right now, more than anything, asking any of those elected officials out there before they make their decisions on how they're going to spend their funds, listen to what your teachers are telling you. Before you make a decision based on some pretest you give in September, make sure you've run that through your teachers. Before you buy that glittery new curriculum or software or license, make sure you listen to the teachers and then listen to them again later when they tell you it's not working or it is working and we want more or we want less of that. So I just love everything that everybody said. Um, I think it really embodies all together and what a diverse group of individuals too that I'm, I'm excited and, and thankful for being um, here with everybody. But I think it really embodies that true voice that all of us teachers are looking for. Well, we're gonna have to leave it there for now, but if you wanna continue this conversation, we hope you'll join us at the 2021 Merck Conference on Friday, October 22nd on the Hop Into online platform. Tickets are available now, and there are special rates for VCU and Merck school divisions. You can register on our website at merck.soe.vcu.edu slash conference. That's merc.soe.vcu.edu conference. While you're there, you can check out Merck projects and reports on prominent issues in public education and sign up for our stakeholder email listserv to stay up to date with our latest research and resources. You can listen to other episodes from this series and subscribe to Abstract wherever you get your podcasts, including SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and the Merck website. Our thanks as always to the BCU School of Education for supporting the work that we do at Merck and to all our partner school divisions, Chesterfield, Goochland, Hanover, Henrico, Petersburg, and Richmond Public Schools. Thanks to Terry, Pat, Stacy, and Deanna for sharing the perspectives today. And of course, as always, thanks to you for joining our conversation. We hope that you will share this episode with anyone who you think would find it interesting or helpful. This has been another episode of Abstract, the podcast of the Metropolitan Educational Research Consortium in the School of Education at Virginia Commonwealth University, where we explore issues and ideas in public PK-12 education. Let's talk again soon. <laughs>